Dotnet Rocks episode 797 with guest Mark Seaman. Recorded live Thursday, August 23rd, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, we're back. It's all good. Mr. Campbell, how are you? I'm well, sir. How are the servers? Servers are humming along. I like that very much. We had a bumpy week there. We did. And uh, we're recording this, of course, the the first day after the servers got back online. But I got to tell you, um, one of the reasons why it took 48 hours is because when the ISP's plug got pulled, which the story is that I got a, I basically found out the hard way that the ISP went down, they really didn't tell us in advance that anything was going to happen. Uh, I was in Nashville. And right. you know why I was in Nashville? Why were you in Nashville, my friend? Because I was signing contracts with major television studios to license the Franklin Brothers Lifeboat to Nowhere album on TV shows. I love that. So I signed licenses for Best Inc. and Mrs. Eastwood, which mm-hmm. is about Clint Eastwood's wife. Now, first of all, I am sorry because I plead ignorance about these shows because I don't watch TV and right. I'm not saying that to be better than anybody. I'm just trying, I try not to fill my head with TV. Um, so, but Best Inc., Mrs. Eastwood, uh, MTV's The Real World, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Cole and Lamar, Kim and Courtney Take NYC, Saddle Ranch, Bad Girls Club, Bad Girls Need Love 2, Coping, which is an uh, interesting show from Denmark. That I think it's from Denmark. It's, is that Coping from your country, Mark? I don't know. I don't watch TV. Either. All right. <laughs> Another one. All right. Tough Love and uh, all 13 Discovery Network channels. I basically signed a blanket license with Discovery Network so that they can use it in any of their shows. Nice. And the way it works is that they pay standard royalties through BMI. So I actually get don't get paid by them. I get paid by BMI. Okay. So, and but the downside of this is only half of those shows will actually tell us that they've used our music in the TV shows. So, forcing me to extend my cable contract and sit and tape and record all of them and have my children go through and look for my, you know, my songs. Oh, geez. So, help a guy out. Watch these stupid shows. And tell me if you hear any of my music. If you ever Please. hear any of your music on a TV show, send us a note. Yeah. And if you want to hear the music itself, it's at franklinbros.com. And there you the go. album is Lifeboat to Nowhere. All awesome. Right. So that's what I was doing. I was signing, and I find out that everything's down, and of course, I couldn't do anything about it for another day. So, But we're back. We're back. And we're moving to the cloud. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Damn it. So, who's talking to us, Richard? I think you should do a Better Know a Framework. That, what do you mean? That wasn't my Better Know a Framework? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it was. No, it wasn't. Okay, <laughs> Better Know a Framework. Let's roll that crazy music. All right. What do you got? So, uh, MEF in WinRT. Really? Yes. Okay. System.composition. That's what it's, it's called? There. Yeah, System.composition is the namespace, and it's child namespace. Namespaces system.composition.convention and system.composition.hosting and system.composition.hosting core contain types for developing extensible applications. Hmm. This is all the stuff that came from MEF. I didn't. Uh, that's cool. I wondered where it went and how it be represented. I don't know that I like the name. Well, yeah, I don't know either. It's composition is a little bit different than extensibility. Well, I, when I think composition, I always think about... Uh, Prism, yeah. Yeah, Prism, and uh, the project before it, and uh, was it called? And Alexandria. Yeah. You know, that it was more about UI composition, and this is more about code composition. Now, I'm not sure if this is up to date, but it says in the docs, and I'm at, uh, by the way, tinyurl.com slash winrtmf, and uh, it says there that to install the following namespaces, open your project in Visual Studio 2012, choose Manage NuGet Packages from the Project Menu, and search online for Microsoft.Composition. So this is part of uh, – this is 
outside of the of the framework it seems to me mm-hmm. and uh you have to get it with NuGet. All right, well that's fair. I mean that's how Math was delivered originally too, right? Yeah, that's the story. Um but you know, I haven't tested it so I'm not sure if it's actually in the product now. But anyway, that's what the website says, so know it, learn it, love it, system.composition. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show 789, and that was the show we did with Andrew Arnott about .NET Open Auth. Yes. And this comment comes from uh, Shmuley Lingard, who says, uh, a really great show. I wanted to point out that while I agree that Facebook permissions should be granted as needed, and if you don't want them, you can continue, doing that in practice is a bit hard. The Facebook API only gives developers the option to ask permissions, and if the user says no, then they can't log in using Facebook. Yeah. Now, you remember I was complaining about this whole thing of, right. you know, we, we talked about this on the show, mm. and uh, they, yeah, just because I won't give you permission doesn't mean I don't want to use your app. You know, you should right. be able to tolerate this, but he, he's saying this, the API just doesn't allow it. He goes on to say, the developer can ask for more permissions, but if the user says no to the expert permissions, no login. Apps seem to get away with this because they don't have you log in until they need the feature, usually posting to your wall is the feature they're asking for. Uh, websites, though, usually uh, want the user to log in some way to even access the site. So unless they have their own login, they can be linked back to a Facebook account. If the user doesn't give permission, no login. Mm. So, I mean, the real point here is it's that's the way the API works. It, there's almost no choice for the developer. You know, you, this is an intercept that happens as sort of a provisioning deal with the app to Facebook. So you're not even in the app at that point when uh, Facebook's blocking you. So we're kind of stuck as it stands right now. And uh, so it means I'm staying away from a certain number of apps. We're just going to have to improve that. Uh, but Shmuley, thanks so much for your comment. A coveted .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you would like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. We promise it'll be up. It will. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online in the way of videos. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those that you hear on this show. 12 to 15 new courses every month, a free 10-day trial giving you 200 minutes of access to the library and a wide range of topics including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, Pretty much everything on the Microsoft stack, including extensive Windows 8 coverage and coverage of HTML5, CSS3, you name it, it's up there. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our esteemed guest, Mark Seaman. Mark is the author of Dependency Injection in .NET and the inventor of AutoFixture. He's a prof- Hey, my auto needs fixture right now, actually. <laughs> He is a professional software developer and architect living in Copenhagen, Denmark, one of my favorite cities in the world, and currently an independent advisor. He enjoys reading, drawing, playing the guitar, good wine, and gourmet food. One of us, Mark Seaman. How are you? Fine. You? I'm doing well. Richard, I'm sure, is doing well, too, and we're very happy to have you on the show. You've been talking about rest a lot lately, uh, but there are other things on your mind, too, I take it. Yeah, so the, the reason why I've been talking and thinking a lot about REST is because I'm doing a REST service and I've been pretty much involved with the client for the last um, six, eight months doing designing REST services for, for this um, company. Um, so this obviously makes me think a lot about it and also, you know, implementing it. And we're using the, um, the, the new web API, the ASP.NET um, web API for, for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's that's pretty interesting to learn about REST and um, and see what it is. And REST is one of those things that's kind of a, a little bit misunderstood. And it actually took a while before I, I even got it myself, if you will, because first of all, it was just like, yeah, so well, you transport things over HTTP, but didn't we do that on SOAP already? What's the you know what's the big deal? Hmm. And you and you have to kind of figure or understand why this is so much different than SOAP, and that takes a little while. At least for me, it did um, before that sinks in. Doesn't REST just um, sort of a general term for data over HTTP, whereas web services are sort of a few layers higher than that? Yeah, so that's that's the uh, that's one of the common misconceptions. And uh, obviously, REST is one of those passwords where everyone has their own you know opinion of yeah. what it is. So I'm just going to give you 
what I've been able to, you know, gather from other people and so on. So, but obviously you could, you could claim, and some people do claim that it's just, you know, transporting stuff over HTTP. But where the real, real value comes in is when you really leverage the HTTP protocol as much more than just a transport protocol, because the protocol actually, you know, provides you with a very vocabulary about what does it mean to read a resource and what does it mean to, you know, create a resource and delete a resource and so on. And, you know, we have all those status codes and, and things that we can use. A rich vocabulary. Yes. Yes. And also you, you can't really argue against the thing that HTTP is a very, very successful protocol. So it must be doing some right. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting to just take that and see why isn't that HTTP works so well? And, and, you know, it works very well when, when we have, you know, human to machine interaction on the World Wide Web. And can we translate what works so well in order to make machine to communication work very well in a very robust manner as well? So that's kind of that when you do, you start to think about those things. Right. Um, yeah. So, so um, yeah, I'm just, yeah, so I'm just talking here and you, you should probably, you know, stop me. When it, when it gets <laughs> no, that's okay. Well, you know, it, it just seemed to me that when rest became a thing, you know, everybody was excited about it, probably more because we had a, a, a simpler method of accessing data, essentially XML over HTTP at its most, at its purest core, or even JSON over HTTP. Right. And that, that became what was really exciting about it It was sort of, you know, we, we appreciate what you guys in the soap world did for extensibility. But, you know, if I don't need that, if I, I have known servers and they're all within the United States or whatever, you know, this is much easier. Mm -hmm. It starts out looking a lot easier, but you know, the, you could say the level of sophistication or the direction or the axis of sophistication points in a different direction because you can actually be pretty sophisticated about rest as well, but you know, compared to, to soap. Um, but it's just a different mindset that you have to, 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 um, to have. So, um, so when you talk about just doing, you know, plain old, old XML over HTTP, um, you might actually just be, do, be doing, a, you know, HTTP post and just posting um, XML through HTTP, and that's not what we would call REST normal, but, you know, some people actually do that. Um, but there's a guy called Richardson that defined something he called the maturity model. So we talk about the Richardson maturity model, and that defines three stages. So you could say the first stage, what REST is about is just to... Um, leverage the HTTP verbs where you say it actually means reading a resource and post actually means creating a resource and so on and put and delete. That pretty much corresponds to CRUD, you know, read, update, and eat. Uh, and then you can build up a couple of layers more sophistication if you want to do that. So when you are, you know, woo, um, maturity level three, um, then you have people start to talk about what they call hypermedia controls. Um, and what that really is about is that you that you have links. Um, so instead of having a set of known URIs and trying to compose, you know, templates for uh, compose addresses from templates, what you actually do is you follow links that have semantic value. Um, and that sounds really highbrow, I know, but it actually works pretty well in practice. Um, so um, maybe I should give an example here. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so what I'm I'm working with at the moment is a um, they say music provider, so a provider that provides, um, you know, music content. And we're creating a couple of things, for example, a um, catalog service that um, pretty much exposes their catalog of music. And that's, you know, millions of, of tracks um, where you can browse and search in the catalog. And the way that you, um, the way that you um, search the catalog, for example, is you start by the single published URI that we have. And what you get back is a, um, a document, and it might be XML or JSON. You can choose which one you want. And what you get there is a bunch of links. And those, link, those, those links are actually atom links, if you're XML at least. So they have semantic value. So we have, um, you can search for a link that has a specific, um, 
so-called relationship type. And you can pretty much think of this as, you know, a link that says click here to sign in or click here to search or whatever it is. It just has a more machine-readable format. Um, so you could follow that link to actually perform the search and without ever knowing what the address of the search service actually are, um, or, or, or without knowing the um, address of the search service itself. You just know how to find it. Does that make sense? Yep. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I, I'm just trying to get a feel for... I, I, I see these documents where folks are talking about, well, that's not really restful. And and the thing that I've sort of grabbed onto is they're really trying to minimize the carry of the state from one request to another. You know, yes. you talked about building up this page with links and that those yes. links should really be able to stand on their own. Everything you need to know to make that link work is in the link. You don't need some glob of state somewhere in a session cookie or, or some other state store to be able to make that link work. That's right. That's right. So, so you have this, um, this other, um, this other acronym called hate OS. Uh, which is a horrible acronym, but it says something like hypermedia as the engine of application state. And mm. what's, yeah, what's important here is the word application state because it means every client application that's going to consume this, um, this service, this REST API, it will have the state of the application sitting in between all of those links. So it pretty much works like, you know, the World Wide Web works that every time you load an HTML page, you have a bunch of links and you as the client decide, you know, given the options that, you know, the links that you can choose from, you decide what you want to do next. And that's pretty much the same that a, you know, a restful client can do is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's being given a set of links that it can choose from. And then it, it tries to navigate to the resource that it's interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so you would still have, you know, resources can still have stayed internally. So there's a book called um, Rest and Practice. It's called Rest and Practice and written by Ian Robinson and a couple of other guys. Um, pretty good book. And it has this example of a, um, they're trying to, to model the, um, the, the order flow of uh, Starbucks. So they call that Rest Box instead. And one of the examples is that when you place an order, you get an order status resource that you can actually query on. So that's just going to return a little bit of XML or JSON saying, you know, we're, we're still working on your order. It's not done yet. And you can keep on pulling that uh, specific resource. And then when the order is done, it's actually going to, you know, change the, you know, the content of that and say, well, now your order is actually ready to be picked up and you can pick it up over here. Mm -hmm. So the individual resource itself can definitely change state. Um, but you don't keep application state on the server that actually lives in the links. So that's kind of you know, an example. An example from that is is that ordering thing. Um, as long as as your order is, is in progress, you have no links that can take you further on because you cannot pick up the the order yet. But when the order changes the internal state to you know it's done, now you're actually being presented with a link where you can go and pick up the order. Um, so. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to yeah. imagine how to do a shopping cart without carrying state around where I, I want to yes. keep adding stuff to a cart. This is clearly mm -hmm. I'm building up some state. Yes. And that's what I'm talking about. The individual resource can definitely hold state, but there's no application state. 
right. on the server. So you can definitely have server-side state. Each resource is probably a durable resource somewhere. So if you do a shopping cart, for example, each time you change, modify that shopping cart by adding or removing stuff from it, you're probably calling into some persistent data store and right. actually change the state of the resource there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, but the address of the resource stays the same, and you can always pull it to figure out what the state of that resource is. I see. And um, so the main thing yes. here is don't the token that the browser gets to be able to reference that state, you don't want it in a cookie or in a session object. You want it in the link. Exactly. So URIs represent resources. Right. And that's basically, you know, the IDs of everything that you work with. So there are no IDs. You're, you just have URIs. Okay. So does security happen at the, at the HTTPS level or the Windows authentication level or some other means of authentication? I mean, you can't obviously yeah. just put put a, a primary key in a in a URL and allow somebody to go to town out on it. Well, well, you can you actually can if you want to, but obviously oh, yeah. that's going to give you a, a tight coupling um, to your internal implementation details. But one of the beautiful things about REST is, if we just forget about the security aspect for a moment, one of the beautiful aspects of of REST is that because the client is only supposed to be following links. You could actually change your your um, URI template if you wanted to. So you know you could start out having version one of your um, of your service using your internal database keys mm-hmm. as part of the URI URIs, and then later on you figure out you want to have a different URI scheme altogether. Um, so you change that, but you keep on the semantic markup. So what the client is going to do is still just going to follow links and now the links is going to be different than it is before but it you know it's never going to notice because there's still going to be something on the other end that's going to respond on that address right that makes sense okay so back to security though so if you have something that's kind of sensitive that you don't want to expose on your eye obviously you have to you know protect it in some way and risk doesn't really say anything about what you do with security that's pretty much up to you um, to decide What's going to work um, in your in your particular case? So if you do something that you know is just plain internal service some somewhere, you might actually just do you know Windows authentication if that makes sense to you. Sure. But what we what we do in this case is because we need to be um, we need to be able to support sort of client. We actually have one of the first clients coming in is going to be a Java based client. Um, we uh, build upon this this uh, standard that's called OAuth and a, a token format that's called Simple Web Token. And that just travels around in uh, in an HTTP header. OAuth and simple web tokens don't really have the specification. Don't really say anything about um, how you protect yourself from you know a third party actually watching what goes on in the wire. Um, so if you want to do protection against those sort of things, you have to do security or um, HTTPS. Right. Well, and it, this comes back to if the token for the shopping cart is in the link, I don't want anybody else to be able to use that link except me. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. I want it. So I've got to, there's got to be some kind of authentication strategy. And that authentication strategy is going to say, does this person have permissions for this resource? Yes. And refuse if it doesn't. I think that's what OAuth is doing. Yeah. So OAuth pretty much just gives you a, um, it just gives us on the server an ability to read some claims about who you are and what you can do. Um, and that's what travels in this token that we use. You don't have to use simple web tokens with OAuth. You can actually use other formats as well. Um, but simple web token fits our purpose pretty well, at least. And what that is is pretty much just a um, it's a it's a set of keys and values, and we call those claims saying something like the key might be username and the value by, might be mark in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a claim. That someone, you know, says, well, this user has a username and then, and that is Mark. So now you have to figure out, do you actually trust that claim or not? Do the server trust that? And that's why we then, you know, you take that, um, that, that set of claims and you sign that, uh, with some kind of, um, signature that the server trusts. So it knows that you know, if it trusts the signature, it trusts the issuer of that, um, of that token and then it trusts the claims that are within that token. So you could travel around, uh, you could have that token contain all the information about what you can do. Uh, but if we go back to the shopping cart thing that you talked about, 
um, that's probably not going to be role-based security because um, what you have to protect here is a single resource. So that's more like a thing like ACL-based resource, access control-based right, resources. Right. Yeah. So what I would probably do in a case like that is to have some sort of access control list on a um, on a shopping basket, and then you know when the, when I figure out who the caller is or who the caller represents, I will look up into that access control list and see does that person actually has access to that particular shopping cart or not. So that's that's yeah. how I would do sure. that. So it is a little it is a little more complex, and I guess not to say that WS Star and all of those extensions for security and encryption and all that was easy because just by the nature that you don't hear about that much anymore. Uh, it, it's sort of fallen out of favor, but at least yeah. uh, I, I do like the idea that the platform itself, the, you know, the, 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 the HTB platform, the rest sort of architecture uh, is, or, or the style of, of architecture is uh, not concerned with that. So that f- allows us to think about, uh, authentication as a separate thing, and that's OAuth just does that beautifully, I think. Yes, yes, and it's worth noting that you know OAuth. I think OAuth was authored also with REST in mind, but it wasn't done specifically for for um, for REST. It it you know works just as well for normal um, web logon. You can actually use for active clients as well. So it's just a standard that you know fits well well with um, HTTP in, in general. Yeah. So the stick to go back to the state thing. Um, so the, the the state of your shopping cart in this case is in a is in a database, and you're simply providing a token that allows you to go into that database and do your edits and updates and all of that stuff. So that therefore a, a URL can have within it all of the things necessary to do an update, a delete, a select, all of that. Just built in to the data, the URL, and then it gets authorized or or not, and uh, returns the data in a in a standard format. Well, yes and no. You you could say the URL URL itself is just um, it's just the address of the resource. It doesn't really say anything about what you can do with that resource. Um, obviously, at the server side, you have some you have to have some way to map from the URI that you get and to a specific shopping. Uh, basket, um, but that you know you might just have a, a map, you know, a hash map of the right. if you want to do that. But what we do, because the web API allows us to do that, is we can actually put you know IDs into the URI and and pass them out afterwards. Um, but still, the URI doesn't really say anything about whether you can you know create, or update, or delete, or whatever you want to do with that. That that needs to be communicated in some other way to the to the client developer. Um, and what we do is just write some human readable documentation that tells you, you know, what can you actually do with this thing. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. It must be that happy time again. It's time to give away stuff, my favorite time of the show. I uh, love this. A, a, a lucky winner of the .NET Rocks fan club. Uh, thousands of people have joined the .NET Rocks fan club. And you can, too. Today's prize is a Telerik DevCraft complete collection. Everything that they sell in one package awesome and the winner is johan hasendonk congratulations johan for you yes and uh he he wins just by being awesome there if you, you go. want to uh get in on it just go to dot click on the big get free stuff button in the upper right hand corner and uh, fill out a few forms and you could win something on every show and Every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology handpicked by Richard the Toy Boy and myself. And that decision is getting harder and harder as the time approaches. Yes, it is. It's going to, you know, what's going to happen. We're going to talk about this a lot on the road trip. Yeah. All those hours driving across the country, we're going to be arguing. Well, and we might even be, you know, picking something and using it on the road trip. There you go. That yeah. might be even more fun. We'll take it out for a test run. All right. So ho- sign up, win stuff. We love to give it away. Mark, what's the big gotcha in REST these days? If you know, what's what's the thing that people struggle the most with? I think it's the whole concept of um, following links. Um, so it's it's more like a, an educational thing. Um, but you could say the that I have feeling about the client 
sits on the other end that, that you know, the developer who sits on the other end and, and has to implement the client for the, the stuff that we're working on at the moment. They, um, they try to, they look at the, our, the URIs that we give them and they try to extrapolate how the URI scheme looks like. So if we have a, you know, if we have a URI right now that says, you know, some base domain name and then we go slash catalog slash, um, artist slash Madonna. We always talk about Madonna. I know she's not. <laughs> moment, <but> still, <laughs> there's a lot of Madonna tracks in this country. Children of the eighties. <laughs> yes, exactly. So anyway, so so let's say you go to um, um, you know catalog slash artist slash Madonna. Um, what client developers might try to do is that they might try to infer a URI scheme out of that, saying that probably means that I can take away Madonna and replace with some other artist name, and it's still going to work. Mm-hmm. And um, and that might actually still going to work because that that is may actually be the theme that we currently use. Um, but we never document uh, that we have this specific URI scheme. We say, if you want to know something about an artist, you should follow the link to that specific artist. And you shouldn't really try to infer anything about what that URI scheme actually looks like because we might change it. Um, right. So so that's actually, I think, one of the, the really difficult things to, to get across uh, when you do some one of those things. So because it's uh, just simply a transport, if you will, or simply a protocol, it doesn't have a protocol, in other words. There's no defined schema of right. what these URLs and URIs should look like. So, so, so there, and that, you know, and that's one of the basic concepts of XML, isn't it? That we, this XML document follows this schema, which is published at this link. And now you can go see what, you know, what right. schema I'm following, but there isn't any such per se uh, right. built in mechanism we, for that. No, and we don't even say that, you know, there is a specific XST-based schema for how our XML representation look like. We just have some, we just have some, you know, human-readable documentation and a couple of examples says, you know, it looks pretty much like this. Um, but, you know, we reserve the right to, to not change it because that would be a breaking change, but we reserve the right to add more stuff to it. And you right. should be able to still pass this, the thing. And if we add stuff to that we didn't originally say that was going to be there, but we're not going to remove stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it almost sounds like rest is the new sockets, you know, because that's the problem with raw sockets mm-hmm. programming too, is this protocol list. It's just a stream of data. I mean, it's not that bad in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, being able to not discern what is a, this piece of data and that piece of data, but discerning meaning from it is the same mm-hmm. problem. But, you know, you can definitely do something that where you layer more protocol on top of REST. But you could create an XSD for every resource that you have if you want to do that. I've just made the, made the decision that I'm, I'm afraid that actually gonna, that's gonna, you know, tie us more down that we can actually enable right. us to go forward. Uh, so, so that's why I chose to do the other thing. Um, just be stupid. But, Don't infer anything. Don't assume, which is good advice in general, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so there's this, um, this, this is a much older principle, but there's this thing called Poster's Law, which goes, probably goes back to socket programming, actually, I think. It goes something like, says, you should be liberal in what you accept, but conservative in what you give. Um, right. Ah. Cons- concerning input and output. So we're pretty much trying to live by this, this rule saying, you know, if you post something to us that we can, you know, if, if we can, we will do anything we can to understand what it is that you're trying to say to us. Even if it's not, you know, completely well formed, if we can understand what it is that you're trying to say to us, we will accept it. Um, we would like you to conform to some side of sort of standard, but we will try, you know, the best to do, you know, to, to, to accept your data. On the other hand, when we give you data back, we give you a set of guarantees about what's going to be in that data. And we, you know, we have lots of acceptance tests and unit tests around those things. Um, to um, help us figure out if we're breaking um, that contract because we don't want to break that contract. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. 
Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Isn't there a philosophical element here as well about the idea that once you've provided a link, that link should always work? Well, that's a permalink. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I, so I, that's, that's one of this thing. If you ever, if you ever read, you know, specs, we're in the, the, the part of the spec where you use the word should <laughs> and not must. So, but rest has this idea. We, we call them cool URIs which means something like a permalink. If you ever gave out a URI, you should still have something responding on that address. Right. Even if it's just a redirect to your new structure. So even if you change your URI scheme, right. you, sh- you should have at least something that sits in this, this URI and provides just a temporary redirect or a permanent redirect. So you might actually not serve anything here, but just say, you know what? The, con- the content that you're looking for now is actually over here now. Um, but we're still in the in the should vocabulary. So if you can't do that, um, you are actually allowed to you know take down a resource even though you served the URI uh, previously. Um, there's there are no guarantees there because what a client should do is should always follow links. So it shouldn't really book, book, be bookmarking links, but sometimes they do, and, and we right. need to you know to help them out if they do that. Yeah, and it, when it gets back to what you were just saying about I'll accept a lot of stuff, but I'll only provide stuff that's very coherent. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, it just seems like that mantra would say, I'm going to accept any link I've ever given you, even though I may have changed. Yes, that's that's the ideal, at least. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I really appreciate this sort of mantra around REST of sort of getting back to what the web was really intended for, that mm-hmm. that mindset of linking infrastructure makes a lot of sense to me yes and statelessness yes and and if you look at you know why does the world wide web why does you know html browsers work so very uh, so well one of the reasons is that you know there's no predefined protocol what actually happens is that you request a resource you know a home page and then you you're giving a bunch of links and the and now, because you're a human being, you can actually infer what, you know, sometimes at least you can infer the meaning that, that sits behind a link. So, right. so you'd actually decide whether you want to follow that or not. Um, and then most of the times when you follow that link, there's actually going to be a new resource uh, behind that one. But sometimes you just get, you know, a 404 not found or, you know, a redirect or something else. Mm-hmm. And then you just back off and uh, back, back up again and, and try and start all over. So the only thing we, we need to do to make this sort of application architecture possible for machines is that we need to give clients, um, client software a way to infer what, what's going to, um, what's going to happen if I follow a specific link. So that's what we're trying to do with this semantic markup where we say, you know, each link has, you know, not a, a free text thing, but some sort of, you know, markup. It's typically just a string that says, you know, if you follow this one, you're going to see in our case, for example, an artist, or if you follow this link, you're going to see an album or a track or mm. something else, or a shopping cart or whatever you want. But, but that actually, um, that, that gives us the ability to create some pretty robust client-server interaction. Right. And, because it's, yeah. And, you know, more importantly, it's, it's sort of like the ultimate abstraction layer over, over data and access of data, isn't it? Because any client anywhere can use it. Yeah, so that's actually pretty interesting because we're also talking about uh, having hardware um, manufacturers consuming this interface, um, you know, to play music from a hardware box. So that's yeah. pretty interesting. And I have no idea what they're going to be programming in, but it's probably not going to be .NET. <laughs> I would love it if my coffee maker exposed some REST services there, you know. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, so I could write a little app to to press the brew now button when I wake up. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> this also ties into more of this philosophy. And actually, uh, Mario Carnejo on uh, Twitter mentioned this blog post from Hattie Hariri talking about mm-hmm. this idea that your application is your API, that there really shouldn't be much difference between uh, user-to-machine and machine-to-machine communications. Yes. I mean, do you buy into that idea? It seems like pretty idealistic. So... Not quite. I, I, I think I understand what the idea is. So there, there's been people who's been um, toying with the idea of instead of representing their resources in XML, what they actually use is um, XHTML um, because then you have something that can actually be rendered in a browser but can still be you know passed by a machine. So you can probably make that work. Um, but if you're a client developer and not a human being, that's that's probably going to make your life a little bit um, more difficult because you have to, um, as a developer, as a client developer, you'll have to sit and pass through all the, um, or ignore all the HTML stuff that you don't care about with all the, you know, mm-hmm. the markup. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, you know, XHTML has a, a pretty um, narrow set of, of elements that it actually allows. So you can't just go and say, you know, I want my own re- representation to follow a specific structure. Um, you know, like uh, we have an artist and an artist have a couple of links and they have a, you know, a collection of, of albums they created and a collection of tracks that they created and so on. So we have a pretty well-defined structure of, for example, how, what an artist looks like. Um, but you can't really do that in XHTML because, you know, there's, you're not allowed to create or invent new, new elements. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you have to, to resort to some other thing where you, where you use a class attributes to define, you know, a lot of divs and, and class attributes to define what, what the structure really goes like. Um, and it's just going to make it a little bit more difficult for the client to actually pass that. So it's probably going to be possible, but I, I think it's, it's not, it's probably not going to be that practical. Um, I'd, I'd much rather see something. Um, you probably talked to Udi Dahan one time or another, other, I guess. Yeah. Um, but he, he talks about, um, web user interfaces as mashups. Um, so he says, well, you can pretty much just load an HTML page with a lot of JavaScript, you know, a lot of jQuery. And, um, what that can do then is it can, it can talk to various REST APIs or other sorts of APIs and just, you know, load the data that those APIs give it and render it on to the page. Uh, as we go along, and, and I think that's that's probably a, a pretty interesting approach to to how I would you know create uh, URIs, uh, modern web URIs today. And we were talking about a lack of protocol, and and I wonder if does O data solve that problem? I don't really think it does. I think O data tries to solve a different problem because um, you know O data definitely gives you a way to query data. And, and it makes it very, very easy to expose your internal data sources in a um, in an interoperable way. Um, but it also creates a very tight coupling to the specific database schema or whatever it is that you have. Um, so, um, sure. so the whole so the whole thing, the whole point of, of risk, or a very big point of risk from my perspective, is that it's a pretty good place to be if you want to create um, APIs uh, where you can keep moving forward without breaking compatibility with your existing clients. Yeah. And that's going to be pretty hard with OData, at least if you just, you know, take OData and run it over in an existing relational database that you have. Um, because every time you're ever going to change a name of a column in that relational database or a name of a table, you're going to break existing clients. Um, so, um, so I think it solves a different problem because if your problem is just that you want to expose your relational database um, to a client that doesn't that isn't able to talk to that database natively because of you know it's a different platform, um, but you can still kind of control those clients and you know coordinate when you when you make breaking changes. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty um, that's a that's a very um, that's probably a, a good way of doing that because uh, you, you know you, you don't really you don't really have to do a lot of coding for that. So um, what the what the yeah. real issue is is that OData is sort of like the ADO.net of the web. In other words, it 
doesn't provide for a place for you to hook in your own logic or create your own, you know, custom views of that data. You can do that. Um, so what I'm so far, I just talked about, you know, pretty much imagine that you take some tool built into Visual Studio and you run it over your relational database scheme and it's going to create probably an entity framework uh, model over that. And then you can expose that model over OData. That's possible to do. But you can also with OData write your own um, OData source if you want. And as long as you expose iQueryable of whatever it is that you want to expose, you can actually do that. So it doesn't have to be based on a relational database. You can do it on an in-memory data store or you know, whatever else you want to do. But is it robust enough to deal with all of the things that an application wants to do with a backend? So, so that's the big question. I think the answer is probably going to be no, um, because... Let me let me ask another question in return. Have you ever tried doing a query against something that implements iQueryable of T, and and you know you're talking to link to to something, link to SQL, or link to Oracle, or whatever that might be, and then when you actually try to do that, you get a not implemented exception or not supported exception back. Hmm, sure. Does that not sound familiar? Yeah. So so the reason why that happens is because the um, the things you can do with link and with iQueryable um, are very, you know, the, the, the feature set you have there is very, very big. But not all of it translates into a specific data store. Mm-hmm. And that means you have a lot of those things that you can't really implement against that data store. There are some things that are much simpler than that. Yes. So, so what I like about, you know, hand coding my REST APIs or, you know, designing them very meticulously is that I can define exactly what it is that I want to expose. And, and, you know, I don't really give my clients a lot of options of how they want their data represented uh, on how much of it they, they want. Um, so um, let me give you another example here. Mm-hmm. Um, when we started out talking about exposing a lot of this um, music data over a REST API, Lots of, of, you know, existing users of an older API that this customer of mine had, um, they were talking about, well, we need to be able to specify how many, uh, how many hits do we want per page and what's going to be the sort order and, you know, what data do, do we want to have included into this, um, to this, um, return response and what do we, what don't we want to have? Although, you know, very database oriented way of thinking and, you know, things that you could do with OData. But the, the problem with doing that is that one of the reasons why the World Wide Web works so well and why it's so scalable is also because in HTTP, we have built in caching. Um, it's simply built into the protocol. And what happens is that you have, you know, you probably know your local browser has a local cache. Mm-hmm. And it actually respects cache headers that sits on the resource. And a lot, there's going to be lots of intermediary routers that sits between you and the actual resource that mm-hmm. might also have a cache there. So you have, you know, built in caching because the internet is your cache. Um, but that means that if you want to take advantage of that, um, what a, what an internet cache is going to do is it's going to create a new item, a new cache item for every URI that it sees. So if you keep changing UI because you want you allow people to give you a lot of different query strings, um, you're also creating lots of different views on the same resource, and those are not cacheable t- together. I mean, they're, they're separate items. Um, so we really wanted to keep your op- the options down that we gave to the client that says, well, you know what, we might actually give you a little bit more than you need. But odds are that you're not you're never really going to hit the server when you when you ask for this thing. You might you know, just hit the cache that sits along the way. So it's probably going to be faster anyway. Um, but that's also one of the reasons why we didn't really want to go the whole OData way, uh, because this is not, you know, a database query. Right. Um, so so sometimes you can't fit what you want into a database query. So is there a hybrid approach? Can you provide links to OData sources rather than having to code up that all yourself in a REST API? Well, you, def- you definitely could. Um, I don't know if I w- would want to do that. Um, 
but I guess that probably depends on the domain, and I'm very influenced on the, do- yeah. the domain that I'm working with at the moment. Um, yeah, I don't see why you couldn't do that. I, I mean, mean, you know what I'm saying, though, right? I mean, yeah. you have your your REST API, which is your sort of home base, your 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 sure. entry point, and yes. then instead of having to go and serve up the data yourself and pull it back, you can just provide a link to an OData URL. I think it would probably be something like, well, here's a lot of here's a set of standard things that you can do, but if you really want to, you know go ahead and, and take responsibility of what you're doing yourself. Here's a link to an old data source. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so, that, that yeah, seems so like a good approach. So they're just, they're only links and you can link, you know, across services and so on. So you could have your old data service sitting on one box and you could mm-hmm. have the rest of the API sitting on another box. And as sure. long as they can link to each other, well, you just have one, what looks like one service. Yeah. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Mark, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Will you come back and talk about more stuff like Web API and other things that you're thinking of? Yes, I would be delighted to do that. Fantastic. We'll, we'll, we'll get you on the schedule for another one. In the meantime, folks, thanks for listening to .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Floralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pearlsite.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.